chapter 16 to 14, verse 23. 1 Samuel 13, verse 16. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying at Gibeon in Benjamin, while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned towards Opera in the vicinity of Shaul, and another towards Beth Horon, and the third towards the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim, facing the wilderness. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel, because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plows, points, mattocks, axes and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now a detachment of the Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, and his young armor-bearer said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom were Aijah, who was wearing an ephod, he was son of Ichabod's brother, Ehitibub, son of Phineas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sener. One cliff stood on the north towards Michmash, the other to the south toward Geba. Jonathan and his young armor-bearer, said to his young armor Come, let us go to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come on then, we will cross over toward them and let them see us. Come up to us. We will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his right using his hands and feet, with his armor-bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In the first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with them, muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. 
While Samuel was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved on beyond Beth Avon. My name's uh, Carl Denick. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're joining us today, it's uh, great to have you with us. Uh, we're going to be thinking about those words, but before we do that, let's ask God to uh, speak to us through them and empower those words by the Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, uh, we need you uh, more than anything else in the world. And uh, Lord, sometimes we know that and sometimes we don't. But either way, Lord, we ask that you would be present among us here by your Spirit, uh, that you would strengthen us by your words uh, so that we might know your love for us and so that we might trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, in the history of sport, no win, I think, seems quite uh, as unlikely as Stephen Bradbury's gold medal in uh, the 2002 Olympic speed skating. Does anyone remember? Uh, was anyone watching that at the time? Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, Bradbury was dead last uh, by a considerable way. He'd, he'd been in uh, Olympic speed skating or in speed skating, skating for a long time, but never really achieved all that much, really. He was dead last, way out of medal contention, until everybody else in front of him tripped over themselves and he sailed past them, uh, a little bemused by what had happened. Uh, and that win has, of course, become part of Australian folklore. And, and why not? Because after all, particularly as Australians, I think, we love an unexpected victory against the odds. We love to see the underdog win. Uh, you know, just like the Richmond supporters love to see Richmond win a couple of years ago, uh, we love to see the underdog win. Uh, and here in this chapter, God shows that he too is the God of unexpected victories, but not in just games of sport and Olympic speed skating, but he's the God of unexpected victories in the world uh, and among his people. Here in this chapter, we see God's power to win against overwhelming odds, against ridiculous odds. And we see not just God's power, but we see two human responses, two contrasting human responses to that incredible power of God. In the first case, we see Jonathan's incredible trust in the passage that we just read. And then in the second half of chapter 14, which we'll come to a bit later, we see Saul's folly, King Saul's folly. So first of all then, the passage that we read, we see Jonathan's incredible trust in God's power. Uh, you might remember last week, from last week, if you were here, that Jonathan had attacked a Philistine outpost uh, and then the Philistine army had hit back. They'd sort of swarmed, they'd mashed their troops 
And as a result of that, Saul's troops, the people of Israel, had begun to scatter all over the place. At the end of the section, just before where we started reading, Saul is left with only 600 troops facing 3,000 chariots with 6,000 charioteers and numerous, countless soldiers. And from that point on, the Philistines, we're told in this passage we read, they break into three detachments and then head out into Israelite territory. So there should be a map uh, of that, hopefully. Is there a map, Caleb? There you go. So uh, you can see there in the top corner the the green lines going in three different directions over to the east, to the north, and over to Ramah. Uh, And then later on, just that little orange arrow going up to the the explosion, that's, uh, that's Saul and Jonathan going up on their little way. Just to give you an idea of what's going on see from that map that the Philistines head off into these uh, three different directions and the point is that the Philistines are kind of spreading out to encroach on all of Israel's territory. Thanks Caleb, you can put that down. Uh, But to make matters worse, it then becomes clear that not only are the Israelites outnumbered, they don't have any weapons. Uh, They have none of their own blacksmiths to make weapons uh, the, the, they're dependent on the Philistines, not just... ...to sharpen an axe or a goad. So on average, for the average Australian, about $5,000 for an axe sharpening. You'd probably, you'd probably just go, oh, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a bit too blunt. And by the time we, we reach the end of the chapter, we, we realise that while there are 600 soldiers in Israel, there are only two swords. One for Saul and one for Jonathan. This is a dire situation. But it's in, in that precise situation that Jonathan turns to his armour bearer and says, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. We need to realise just how improbable what Jonathan and his armour-bearer are doing. For starters, they've only got one sword between them. Goodness knows what the armour-bearer was carrying uh, for his weapon. Then to get to the garrison, they need to scramble their way between these two cliffs, between these two rocky crags. And we're given the names of those crags, and that's not just for interest. Bozes and uh, Sinai. Bozes means slippery or miry or something like that, and Sinai means thorny. In other words, this is a really difficult place to get through. And once they get to the outpost at the other end, they have to climb up to it. Climb, climb up these rocky crags to get to this outpost, and when they finally get there, they're outnumbered 10 to 1. I don't know what you would have been doing in that situation. But I'm guessing that probably it wouldn't have been that. You wouldn't have woken up in the morning and said to your armour bearer, let's go over to that Philistine outpost. So why do they do it? Why do they take on such an enormously difficult task? 
And the answer to that question is really actually very simple. And it comes in verse 6, when Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. That's the reason that they do it. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Jonathan says, let's go and attack them because God is able to beat the odds. And save us and save Israel, whether that's just with two people and one sword. Or whether that's with a whole army. God can save his people. And it's not just Jonathan who trusts God, it's the armour bearer as well. He says, do all that you have in mind. There he is. He's got nothing, no weapons with which to fight. Do all that you have in mind. I'm with you heart and soul. This isn't a suicide mission. It's important to realise that. Jonathan and his armour bearer establish a sign that would indicate that God would give them the victory. So, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, look, if they call us up to them, up to them in the garrison, then we'll know that God has given, us, uh, given them into our hands. If they, they say, look, you just stay there and we'll come to you, uh, then we won't engage them. We know then that God won't have given us the victory. But when they're called up by the Philistines, they go up. Jonathan goes first with his sword, strikes the people, his armor bearer, bearer follows them up, and finishes off the men who knows what with. And they gain this victory over 20 of their enemies. It's brutal. It's war. These people were coming to destroy God and God's people. But God gives Jonathan uh, and his armor bearer victory. And so if last week in the passage that we looked at we saw fear... We saw on display this terrible fear among the people of Israel and their king Saul. If last week we thought about fear, this time what we see in this passage is Jonathan's incredible trust. And it's important, I think, for us to see both sides. We need to know what fear is so that we can know what to avoid. And we need to know what trust is so that we can do that. The opposite of fear is trusting God. The opposite of hiding in the caves, you might remember last week, and in thickets and running to the other side of the river. The opposite of fear is trust in God, irrespective of the outcomes. Trust not that God will do exactly what we hope that he will do, but trust that he can. Nothing can hinder the Lord. Perhaps he'll save us. Nothing can hinder him from doing it. And trust enough to have a go and to leave the outcome to God. Jonathan and his armour bearer face insurmountable odds. Uh, if you're at the strategic planning table uh, of uh, Australia's, strategic, Australia's Strategic Command and they had this on the plate for, a, uh, for an attack, they would say, we're not doing it. 
but Jonathan and his armour bearer go. So often we want to wait until the odds are in our favour before we act. And not just the odds are a little bit in our favour, but we want the odds to really be in our favour so that we absolutely know 100% that what we do will 100% succeed. Forget uh, old thorny and slippery. We want the way that looks easy and successful. Destined to work. Forget 10 to 1 in the opposition's favour. We want 10 to 1 in our favour before we will make an attempt for God. We want 100% certainty about the outcome and we won't do it unless we feel that we can control what will happen or how someone will respond. We do that, don't we, when we share the gospel with people. We're, we're afraid to share the gospel with people if we don't know that they'll respond favourably. But Jonathan says, who knows? Who knows whether God will save by many or by few? Who knows whether we'll give this a try and it will work out? All I know, Jonathan says, is that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. I wonder if you have that same confidence that nothing can hinder God from saving, whether that's saving you or others. Perhaps God has opened up before you a way to serve him, but you're afraid to do it. Afraid it will be too hard. Afraid it won't work. Perhaps there's something that needs to be done. And the thought of doing it terrifies you. I remember when I uh, made the decision or was facing the decision whether or not to leave a secure job in engineering to go and study for four years and go into pastoral ministry, for which I felt, to be honest, horribly ill-equipped. I remember my dad saying to me the first time I ever thought about or raised the idea with him, he said, well, I'm just not really sure that you're cut out for it. <laughs> and then every time at the end of college to face going to a new place and not knowing anyone and all the challenges of that, beginning in ministry, leaving friends behind and going to a new place to do what God has called you to do. The fear. The lack of control. The uncertainty. Will it work? Maybe it'll be a complete catastrophe. Let's go over to the Philistine garrison. Perhaps the Lord will give them into our hands. Because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Whatever it is that's before you, even if the odds are against you, you can trust God. Not trust God that everything will turn out in the way that you want, but you can trust God 
that he can do it. And in the end, that God will win. And yet we find it so hard to believe, don't we? And yet we have every reason to believe that God can do it. He did it for Jonathan. He did it for Jonathan with two men and one sword. And he did it with Jesus. A whole host of people saved by just one man. Saved not from sword-wielding soldiers, but from the powers of Satan and the force and from our own sinful flesh. Arrayed against us in the heavens, from the judgment of man, powerless and yet victorious. While everyone else was hiding in caves, Jesus did what no one else could do. And if he can do that, he can save us in what we're facing. There's no maybe with Jesus. There's just the it is finished. Final breath on the cross. The most important victory that there is is to be forgiven by God in Jesus. And if you don't have that, then you need to trust God. But if you do have that, then you can know that whatever you face today or tomorrow, whatever God is calling you to do, whatever place God is calling you to go, whatever God is calling you to face, you can know that you can trust that he can do it. So first we see Jonathan's trust. And then we see King Saul's folly. After the attack on the outpost, the whole Philistine army descends into panic. They even start attacking themselves. And the Israelite army, which had fled, begins to regather. They begin to think, oh, actually, maybe this isn't so bad after all. We might be able to do this. And Saul finally himself decides to get in on the action. Uh, And that's where we pick up the story in verse 24. And I want to read a bit more of that chapter with you. And then we'll unpick that before we finish. So, 1 Samuel chapter 14 from verse 24. It says there, Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath, so he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Curse be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? That day after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Aijalon, they were slaughtered. Uh, they, sorry, they were exhausted. Exhausted. They pounced on the plunder and taking sheep. They butchered them on the ground and ate them, together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, "Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith," he said. 
roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. Saul said, let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn and let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. Saul therefore said, Come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. Saul then said to all the Israelites, You stand over there, I and Jonathan my son will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, they replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, Why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot and the men were cleared. Saul said, Cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Saul said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die, he who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. And Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side, Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobar, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The first thing that we see in those words uh, as we continue in chapter 14 is that Israel is in distress and they're in distress because uh, because Saul has made a foolish oath. He said to people, well, no one's allowed to eat anything until we've won the victory, until we've conquered the Philistines, which is a profoundly stupid thing to do, as Jonathan points out later. It's hard enough to get through a normal day on an empty stomach, let alone to be marching hundreds of uh, kilometres and, uh, and uh, fighting a battle. And that foolishness becomes even more clear when at the end of the day, the soldiers who have been hard-pressed, who are starving, pounce on the plunder, they slaughter some of the animals and they eat whatever they can get their hands on, including the blood. Now, that was a, a sin against God. God had commanded... Uh, the people not to eat the blood, that's because the life of the animal was represented by its blood and the blood was also tied up with the sacrifices that God had called the people to make. But the men are starving and 
Saul's foolish oath had driven them to this sin. The greater problem, of course, though, is that Saul's son, Jonathan, doesn't know about the oath, and so as he's walking through this forest and he sees the honey oozing out of the trees, he thinks to himself, oh, fantastic, have a little bit of a snack along the way. And at first, nothing happens, but then as the chapter develops and as Saul comes to inquire from God whether they should attack the Philistines, it becomes clear that there's something wrong. They cast lots to see what the, what the issue is and the lot falls to Jonathan. And Saul rashly says in verse 44, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. <laughs> Here's the king. The king that the people asked for with a stupid oath and now he's about to kill the one person in Israel who's done anything through whose hands God has done anything to save the nation. He's so committed to his foolish course of action that he doesn't even stop to think. And it's He probably would have killed his own son were it not for the people in the army who said, no. Should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground for he did this today with God's help. The men won't stand for it. God has used Jonathan and they won't let Jonathan die. And so if the first part of this story shows Jonathan's great trust in God, then the second part of the story shows Saul's profound folly, his hasty decisions and his failure to see what God is doing. Well, it's a familiar story, I think, isn't it? Foolish decisions, foolish promises... And foolish judgments. It's familiar maybe in our own lives, in the lives of those around us, and in the world in which we live. Every day we think to ourselves things like, This will be the best idea ever. Fantastic. No one can eat. It'll be fantastic but it leads us and others astray. We make foolish promises and foolish commitments that bring us to ruin or that we can't keep. We make foolish judgments and we condemn people where we should let them go and we forgive people where we should hold them to account. And as if that's not bad enough, the people around us do the same things. And they impact our lives. They make foolish commitments and foolish oaths that destroy our lives and the lives of those around us. Our boss makes a foolish decision. Our teacher or our school makes a foolish decision. Our parents make a foolish decision. Our politicians 
make hasty commitments and hasty judgments that backfire and promises that they can't keep. And each of those things threatens to throw our lives into turmoil. Except that, as we see in this chapter 2, God is still on the throne. Steve said it before, didn't he? God is still on the throne. Despite the trauma of Saul's foolish oath and Saul's lack of courage, God wins the day. The nation and the leadership of the nation is falling to pieces. But God wins the day. Not through the king, the king that the people asked for, the king that the people said, this guy will get us through. (laughs) He's hiding in caves and making stupid commitments. But God is on the throne and he raises up two guys and one sword to win an unlikely victory against the Philistine army. And he raises up a people who are foolish enough to ask for a king. To stand up to that very same king and say, no. Not today. Jonathan will not die. And what was true in the days of Saul and Jonathan and the people of Israel is as true today as it was then that is that God is on the throne he was there yesterday he's there today and he'll be there tomorrow as well and my bad decision and your bad decision and the government's bad decision and commitments and promises and judgments are no match for the ruling wisdom and power of God they can't overturn the plans and purposes of God which is an enormous relief, isn't it? As we look around the world and as we look at our own selves, the world is in a mess. And the government can't do anything about it. And the UN can't do anything about it. And America can't do anything about it. NATO can't do anything. The world's health organisation... The world is in a mess. It's been in a mess since Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband. And we could end up cowering on the floor, couldn't we, every day that we wake up and we see the world is in a mess, except for the fact that God is on the throne, ruling his people who belong to him through Jesus. I don't know what uh, improbable thing stands before you today or this week or this year and perhaps you don't even know. Perhaps it hasn't happened yet. But whatever it is, even if it's your own sin that leaves you under the judgment of God, whatever it is, whatever improbable thing stands before you, God rules God is on the throne. God always wins, whether by many 
or by few, or even just by one, the man Jesus Christ. Let's pray.